This is Lyle Mays, and you're listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. Yeah, I can hear you. Is Michael? I can hear you too. All right. All right. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, joining this episode. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. <clears throat> Covered you in the the magazine I started back in 1983, and I sat with you and Pat backstage um, just before I launched Jazz's magazine. Wow, eighty-three. Eighty-three. Well, yeah, it was it was nineteen eighty-three. Um, you had just uh, released, uh, I believe it was. I'm trying to think, what it was an e- the last album on ECM. Well, um, it might have been As Falls Wichita. I'm thinking it was First Circle. Well, that I don't think we recorded that until '85. Really? Okay, so. <laughs> but we may have been doing some of that music, so. That, that that's what I think it was. I think I think you may have started touring with Pedro. And, um, but I remember that concert like. Oh, of course. Um, yeah, we we had done a, a very long European tour in '83 with Pedro and Paul Wertico, uh trying to work them into the group. So this is all making sense. Yeah, and it was um, that's when we met. That's right before I started jazz. Is actually um, Pat was my first cover story interview for the magazine, and here we are, 33 years later, and I'm still listening to and loving Lyle Mays. And we're going to talk about, if it's okay, your new album in, in just a few minutes. I did want to ask you something about an album you had just mentioned, and that was uh, As Falls, Falls, Wichita Falls, um, an iconic record. Um, some people I know that know nothing about jazz say that that was their introduction to instrumental music. Um, you've never done another one. How come? I don't really know. <laughs> we we had talked about it. I mean, there's there's no big story here. Um, there's there's no obstacle. It's just uh, something that we never got around to. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I remember listening to a podcast that you did with Pat talked about that record, and even the backdrop of that record uh, was remarkable with the the sounds and textures. In fact, you know. I had, you know, I'd heard you on a lot of 
projects, ECM projects as well, uh, back in those days from Steve Swallow to Eberhard Weber. Uh, and, wow. and I remember even a Bob Moses project. Uh, my friend had Absolutely. a little label called Grandma Vision. It was one of my favorite labels back then. Absolutely. And, and um, But there was something about Wichita Falls that for me, and I think for a lot of music lovers, took you out of the jazz keyboardist world and put you into something that was maybe a little more expansive and the textures and what were you thinking back then when you were creating an album like that that sort of was a springboard for so much other music that came out after that they wanted to have that sound and that that sort of that drama well uh I guess you would call it high concept or something, but Pat and I discussed how to make a record very different from the traditional jazz duo, where you just sat down and played on some tunes. And we thought, being kids, essentially, that we needed to put a little more into it. <clears throat> we couldn't just rely on our blowing chops that we had to really sculpt something uh, just to show that we were serious. Mm -hmm. So we really planned out the whole record, even though there were, <clears throat> there were long passages that were improvised, but the setting and the approach for those sections were carefully rehearsed. Uh, I had an old four-track tape recorder um, at the time, and Pat and I did... Uh, test runs where we actually rehearsed doing overdubs in an improvised fashion. Sure. So uh, the piece As Falls Wichita was never completely written out. It was never set in stone. We just had uh, almost like a shooting script that we were trusting that on the day of filming, to continue the metaphor, we knew how to do it. We just didn't know what would actually come out. <laughs> um, and we got lucky. Uh, we had never worked with an Anna before. We didn't know how that would go. But he he just loved it. Uh, like playing with textures for him was just something he did naturally. So we hit it off right off the bat and we just put together the piece in the studio. Well, the, you know, there, it, it's been said before, I certainly haven't coined this, but there's a certain type of compositional improvisation that you are known for. Um, I had a conversation a couple months back with the, uh, the lead uh, singer flautist for Jethro Tull and Ian Anderson. And one of the things that Ian told me was, is that, you know, it's pretty much even in his world, a lot of improvisation, um, it becomes more compositional when you begin to play that improvisation that way that you did in the recording studio or live over and over and over again. What's your feelings about that? Well, I um, spent most of my time listening to classical music. Uh, I'm not really a very good jazz musician in the sense that I couldn't tell you who's played with whom and, you know, give you chapter and verse of everyone's career, because I didn't listen to jazz. 
I, I could maybe tell you more about uh, various conductors, but um, I think the fact that I was so influenced by classical composers just made me want to put a level of structure into my improvisations. Uh, but I never thought that jazz and improvisation were inextricably linked. I always thought that jazz was a style and improvisation was a technique. Mm -hmm. They were two very different things to me. I mean, as far as I know, Bach was a great improviser. Uh -huh. Beethoven was a great improviser. So I, I look at the <clears throat> tradition of improvisation to get my clues. Well, you know, it, first of all, you're, you're very humble. Um, there are a lot of keyboardists out there that consider you uh, a very serious jazz uh, pianist. And the other thing I've noticed in your live performances, um, when you, for lack of a better word, when you finish a solo where you've just, you just, it, it just came out beautiful, you almost seem surprised. You, uh, there's a there's a level of wow, look what we just did, and um, I find that maybe part of what you're saying is that you're you're coming up from a, maybe a different field, a different genre, but when you do certain, in my experience watching you solos, it, whether it's in in Lyle May's recordings or live performances or it's with the group. There's an element of uh, drama and surprise when it's when it's over. Um, what's that all about? Or am I off? Well, um, far be it from me to tell anyone that their perception is wrong. I, I totally honor that. Um, it's very cool if that's how it comes off. Uh, for me personally, I'm so concentrating on the task at hand. Uh, of just making the notes make sense and responding mm -hmm. to the other musicians that I I kind of lose track of the fact that I'm on stage and maybe supposed to be an entertainer I'm I'm just at that point I'm in sort of nerd heaven I'm just trying <laughs> to get my equations to balance speaking of equations and 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 ner nerdists um, you seem to be as fascinated with technology and computers as you are with music. Yeah, I, I taught myself how to program around 1979 or 1980. I, I got into computers just after the sort of radio shack, solder it together yourself <laughs> stage when Apple came out with their Apple II which you could plug into a television set and use a tape recorder for data backup. <laughs> so it was kind of between the home hobbyist stage and today's world where everything's automated. <laughs> but I had a natural affinity to it. The first program I ever wrote ran, and I was hooked. <laughs> so the whole concept of the the acronym MIDI with Musical Instrument Digital Interface, that seemed, based on your background and your passion, to be very natural for you. Oh, completely. 
I, I love the idea of um, getting everything working together. Plus, it was in the air. That was the time of amazing technological advances, and it just felt appropriate um, that we should explore the technology available and see what we could get out of it. And, and, and back back then, to be a synthesizer player, you had to program the synth. There were no software packages available for purchase. I mean that, and in the very early days, you just had to know how to program. And so, for instance, when you when you came up with a a sound that a certain patch that is so recognizable, Lyle Mays. Uh, the, the, I don't know what it's called, but it's on on your first solo record, Highland Air, the opening track. That sort of yeah. whistling sound. Yeah. Um, how did you come up with that? Well, again, there's kind of high concept involved. I remembered playing the flutophone in first grade, and the sound of a bunch of first graders trying to play the flutophone was such that the pitch started out as an absolute mess and then as kids looked to their neighbor and figured out what finger to put where it sort of coalesced towards the center without ever quite getting there so I tried to duplicate that effect by having a sound that started with a wide pitch disparity that ramped down towards the center so one of the uh, oscillators of that sound would start on pitch and another one would start way sharp and ramp down to the pitch and it ended up becoming a kind of signature sound yeah. but it all started with me trying to duplicate that wild effect of first graders who were inept <laughs> so so switching to something that's less technological, um, for instance, like your solo record, um, where there's a lot of piano playing, or certainly the, the new quartet record. Um, it seems as if when you're playing, and again, I, I may just be hearing voices, but that you're playing, and even when you're playing solo, you're hearing a lot of other things going on of which you're playing to, and we get to hear what you're doing. Well, uh, uh, you're right, and thank you for recognizing that. Um, I, I felt very uh, strongly going into this project back in the, I guess it was 93 when we recorded the quartet mm -hmm. record. Uh, we had long discussions about how to incorporate my sense of orchestration in an all-acoustic setting. I didn't want us to ignore all the things that I valued about dynamics and ensemble and orchestration and drama just because we were playing acoustically. So uh, it was a combination of careful arrangements and discussions and the entire quartet being conscious of that goal. So we tried to introduce a lot of variety. We tried to make different sections distinct in their own way. And um, 
Well, I, I think to a certain extent we were successful, but it started with an awareness of the importance of orchestration. Uh, you know, I'm pretty critical of most bands that I hear because they seem to be ignoring certain elements of music like dynamics or drama or form variety or what have you. Um, so we just tried to make sure that we could make music that was as complete as possible even though we were in an improvised jazz setting. Yeah, and you picked um, three stellar bandmates to join you in that trip. Um, you know, Bob Shepard, Mark Johnson, and Mark Walker. Um, I, I've known Mark a long, long time. Um, in fact, uh, a funny story I should tell you. Um, back in when Jazz's was at Time Warner, um, we used to have these quarterly uh, uh, instrument-driven themed issues. So one would be keyboard, one would be woodwind, one would be guitar, one might be vocal drum and percussion um, and we were doing the drum and percussion what we would do is we would do a, a contest uh, where musicians would submit uh, music to the contest and I would have well-known um, and, and stellar uh, musicians artists as judges so for I remember for, for the drum and percussion I had Peter Erskine and as a judge and Paulina da Costa and I can't remember who the third one was, it was so many years ago um, and the winner of that contest was Mark um, and then what and happened what year, what year was this? Oh, I want to say this was uh, early 90s yeah okay that makes sense and, um, and I got to know Mark through someone who I, I think is a mutual friend of ours Fred Simon sure uh, and, um, and we used and, to kid kid Fred Simon that he was our farm team <laughs> because Paul uh, Steve Rodby and Paul Wertico played with Fred and then later Mark Walker right so hats off to Fred he's a great guy great and, great, great guy and 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 full disclosure uh, he performed at my four I won't tell you how many years ago it was at my 40th <laughs> birthday party um, and uh, it was great to have Fred. He uh, flown, flew him in from Chicago with his, with his band. I can't remember whether Mark was with him, um, but it was, uh, yeah, Fred. Fred's really, he's something. Um, the interesting, you, you, you had mentioned um, Steve, and, and actually, uh, of all the members in your group, aside from Pat, he, Steve is... Uh, is someone who I've I've kept in touch with over the years. I've always envisioned a Lyle Mays Steve Rodby project, and not to uh, compare it to anything else that's out there, but it rem I was reminded of that again when I recently heard it was out on Yamaha Records, uh, a album with Bob James and Nathan East. And while your playing and musicianship is is completely different. I so love the piano-bass duo. Have you thought about doing something along those lines? Well, again, I, I go back to the idea that I'm, I consider myself more of a composer than a jazz guy. So I'm not usually looking for that kind of project. 
but Steve and I have worked together well, my whole adult career. He's the best producer I know. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so all all the records I did uh, for Rabbit Ears, which was a company that did children's videos. Oh, I knew I knew that uh, label well. I I always hired Steve to be the producer. So in a way, we've done that kind of collaboration, but it's more with Steve in the booth, behind the glass, mm -hmm. guiding us out in the room. So um, I, I, I guess I could say that, yes, I've, I've done that project. It just doesn't come out as a piano-based jazz duo. Right, right. Well, I actually, uh, I raised my first three kids on those five albums. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a friend of mine, actually, uh, was the owner of Wyndham Hill Records. Uh, I don't know, you remember, do you ever meet Ann Robinson? I didn't, I'm that sorry. Was, that was Will Ackerman's uh, ex-wife. Okay. And they, they, they actually, if I remember Rabbit Ears going through Wyndham Hill back then, and they were just beautiful projects. And, and I, I always wanted to kind of hit you up for just the audio portions of those albums. <laughs> so I may still hit you up one day for those because I really enjoyed them a lot. Well, I, I believe on the CDs, the the B-side, what we used to call the B-side of an LP, was the score without the narration. So oh. if you can get a hold of a CD version of any of those, uh, you'll get the story with narration followed by the music only. Wow. Okay. Then I'm going to do that. The um, Just switching gears a lot here. Um, what do you do in your downtime? What are what are some of your hobbies that you're passionate about outside of music? Well, there are so many. Um, I got interested in architecture pretty early on to the extent that I designed my sister's house and had that built in the uh, mid-90s. I mean, I have architect friends who still haven't had their first project built, and I feel a little embarrassed that I, I've actually got a house that I can point to. Uh, but that's a serious passion, and that took a lot of study, a lot of uh, exploration, a lot of soul-searching, uh, a lot of research. Formal study or self-help? Oh, I'm, I'm self-taught in everything, from music to computer programming to architecture to you name it so you're I've you're a professional tinkerer i've always well growing up in rural wisconsin i had to learn how to teach myself at an early age because there just wasn't any culture there of any sort um i i remember practically teaching my high school geometry class because we had a, a phys ed teacher trying to teach it, and he couldn't get the proofs right in the blackboard, and I always come up and help him. <laughs> so eventually, he just let me kind of take the class through the textbook. But uh, in a way, I think it was a blessing that I grew up in such an isolated environment, because I learned how to go after information myself. Uh, not wait for somebody to tell me how to do something. <laughs> so, I, I've read somewhere that um, that your fat, 
in addition to technology, have a fascination with mathematics and 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 certainly science. The um, and I actually checked out online the things that you did uh, with Caltech um, with computers. Um, where do you think the connection is between science and not just music, but how we conduct ourselves either as a musician or as as human beings? Because there, you seem to have a, an appreciation for that link between science and emotion. Well, actually, I think um, Bob Moses, who you mentioned earlier, has the uh, uh, attitude exactly right. Uh, and he always talked about how the musician's job was to focus on the music and the audience's job or luxury was to get to feel the emotion. But the musician, him or herself, wasn't supposed to focus on the emotion. It was the, the job of the musician is to focus on the job. And if you do the job correctly, then that emotion occurs in the audience or the audience. <laughs> but, but then in contradistinction, your music is very emotional. Well, I would say it's very dramatic. And that gives the listener the opportunity to go on whatever emotional journey okay. they're imagining at the time. But I'm not imagining those emotions at all. I'm just trying to make sure that the music is dramatic and has a, a strong arc and has enough features and bumps, I suppose. I, I don't know what to call it. I just try to put in elements that will stimulate uh, the journey that any listener might be on. Yeah, the the uh, it's also been said that you have perfect pitch. Did you learn that, or did I, you? How did that happen? I'm I'm not sure. When I was younger, I I think my pitch was more accurate than it is today, and I don't know what that says about perfect pitch. If there is such a thing or not, I I mean I don't. Uh, discount anyone who claims to have perfect pitch. But I would say that in my case, it was just a, a very strong relative pitch that seemed to persist mm -hmm. so that I could hear a piece on the radio and go to the piano and play the final chord. I was always right with whatever key it was. Um, but Beyond that, I, I don't know what to say. I, I usually think I know what a pitch is when I hear it, but I can be wrong, too. I mean, playing the trumpet kind of messed with my head in that uh, area because the trumpet's in the key of B-flat, so everything's a step off. Yeah, the uh, what I found uh, really interesting as I was what was listening to your music as literally as soon as it came out over the years and I remember the very first time I put on Street Dreams and listening to the opening track um, I can't remember Feet First may have been the name Feet First okay. Steve Gadd yeah and I remember a palpable 
commercial yet incredibly quality sound that had a little bit of almost Steely Dan in it, which I did not expect from you. Oh, it was a complete Steely Dan tribute. I, <laughs> I, I, I tried to actually make the point that that sound was not owned by Steely Dan, that if you did the things that Steely Dan did and paid attention to all the details, that you could achieve that effect. Um, and I, I think it was a bit misunderstood, and I feel sorry for some of the people who kept trying to find that Steely Dan record uh, <laughs> and finally had to learn that it wasn't done by Steely Dan. <laughs> but I was a big fan of Steely Dan, and I oh, and I heard gosh. I heard things in that music that I thought were just of the highest quality, and so I just kind of did my own tribute. So so I wasn't um, hallucinating when I had heard some Steely Dan. Oh, it's very deliberate. <laughs> uh, to the extent that I hired Steve Gadd, I mean. Well, exactly, know. and and you could hear it. And the other thing is, I think what what happens is, especially the the, the critics who who may not care for Steely Dan, um, they eventually come around and say, that was some remarkable musicianship and composition. Um, and, and, and I guess, you know, what we all learn from it is, uh, certainly me as a non-musician, although I do consider myself the worst guitar player in the world, um, the, <laughs> <laughs> what, what I loved about it was, it was great composition, like Donald did so well, but the musicianship was just right there. Yeah, our standards were pretty high. But again, you know, that was Steve Rodby's hand. Hmm. Um, he produced all those sessions. What's Steve doing these days? I actually, I, I sent him an email about a month ago, and he sent me back, and he said, I'm, I'm in the middle of something, but I'll get right back to you, and I haven't heard. He's, he's still in Chicago? Yes, and he's, uh, he's doing all kinds of things, from video editing to still producing recording sessions. He's worked a lot with Ileana Elias um, and got his, uh, I think he got a Grammy Award for their last project. The Brazil record. Um. And uh, he also does a lot of vocal fixing, which the world will never hear about for obvious reasons. <laughs> because if you get to the top of that field, you can't talk about whose vocals you fixed. Right. Right. It's almost like plastic it's surgery. It's like being in the CIA or something. <laughs> he, he just can't really talk about it. Yeah. Uh, who are some of your favorite, uh, let's talk about jazz artists. Who are some of your favorite jazz artists? Can't include anyone in the group. Who else? Um, again, I... I don't really think that way. Mm -hmm. um, I could tell you about my favorite composers. Okay, let's hear. But um, I, I always try to push back a little bit on the the jazz influence question because since I haven't listened to a lot of jazz, I could tell you the first jazz album I ever had was Bill Evans with Jack DeJohnette at Montreux. Wow. So I got lucky. Well, you know? so, so, so doing a trio with Jack DeJohnette years later must have been a dream come true. 
Well, it was a little unnerving. <laughs> uh, it actually made me nervous, and I don't think I played my best because I was playing with, a, in my mind, a living legend. Certainly. Uh, and also, you know, Jack and I hadn't played together except for maybe one concert with Bobby McFerrin at Carnegie Hall of all places. Bobby was in this phase where he wanted to do completely improvised music and we did a trio concert and Bobby didn't even want to talk about what we were going to do. So we went on stage at Carnegie Hall with Jack and Bobby and myself uh, and just made stuff up. And I felt like, you know, the only, the old joke about how do you get to Carnegie Hall, you know, practice, <laughs> I guess it's supposed to be the punchline. And I thought, like, we haven't practiced. And here we are <laughs> stage at Carnegie Hall. This is weird. This You're is Carnegie weird. Hall frauds. <laughs> uh, it, was, it, was, it was bizarre. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, to get back to answering the question, I would say uh, my favorite composers, um, well, it starts with Stravinsky. Mm -hmm. And uh, my pantheon includes Bartok and Elvin Berg, um, parts of Mahler and Wagner and Debussy and Ravel. Um, that that's kind of the the hit list there. Wow! So now I hear your your classical penchant, love for that music. Um, but I also, I can't imagine that you don't enjoy some of the classic progressive rock. Hearing some of that in, 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 in either your phrasings or in the synthesizers, the sustain, the rich sounds, the sound effects. I mean, like, like when, for example, Yes was doing those long compositions. Did you ever, were you ever interested in that? I think I memorized Roundabout. <laughs> um, I, re I remember as a high school kid picking up my first Blood, Sweat, and Tears record mm -hmm. and just cheering the combination of jazz and rock. I just thought that was what we were supposed to do at our age, given you know the fact that we had grown up with the Beatles and the rock and roll revolution. I just felt that it was essential for a young jazz musician to incorporate the sound of the times because as I understand history that's what jazz musicians have always done mm -hmm. so I, I felt no conflict stylistically I felt that you know it was incumbent upon young jazz musicians to incorporate rock influence mm -hmm. so if, if I um, if you were to list uh, and I won't ask you to now won't put you on the spot, but um, music that you're listening to now, would I assume that it's mostly classical? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's always been that way. That's, that's where I get my sustenance. That's where uh, I get to maximum stimulation. Uh, I, I approach music from the compositional end first. And so I'm not influenced by entertainers or performers. Mm -hmm. Um, Matter of fact, I think that that was a later development in um, classical music. 
back in the early 1800s, the composer was the star. It wasn't until the late years of the 1800s where conductors and soloists became the featured attraction. So my understanding of history again tells me to go back to Bach and Beethoven and Mozart as the the artists who wrote their own music and sculpted the forms and created the experience at that architectural level. Yeah, we and and certainly in the the one thing that uh, Tommy LaPuma, uh, just legendary producer, he and I were talking the other day, and one of the things about performers these days, and and maybe more in jazz, um, that there are a lot of artists that are wonderful musicians, and kind of taking what you said a, a step further, but when they decided to become solo artists, um, it didn't actually work. Um, and And some artists are just phenomenal musicians that maybe are great in a band, and I'm not saying you're this, in fact, I want to talk about that in a second. Um, but the but there are some that became solo artists that were so good at being in a band that when they when they went to become a solo artist for some reason it it didn't matriculate. You on the other hand, I, you know, the the Pat Metheny group obviously where people know you probably the most uh, in that setting um, is certainly a band made up of anyone in that band could be a solo artist. Uh, and are you planning on moving more into the solo direction? Do you plan on doing more Matheny group records? What's in store for the future? Well, I'm <laughs> right now I'm more of a software manager than a musician. Hmm. Uh, I, it's not that I have a real desire to leave the music industry. I, I kind of feel like the music industry has left me or left all of us. I mean, I, I can barely recognize the, the landscape out there. And I, uh, I watched as so many of my friends at record companies saw their staffs uh, decimated. And they ended up, if they had a job at all, they were doing the work of five or seven people until the record company itself went belly up or something. So um, I, I've just kind of gone where the economy has gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, mm -hmm. people don't want to pay for music anymore. I could be bitter about that, I suppose, but I, I have other interests and other skills, so I've just kind of moved on. Wow. So... So is it safe to say that we will not be seeing another Lyle Mays record for a while? Uh, probably. I mean, it, it depends on funding, I suppose. But um, it doesn't look like the world really wants that. I mean, they might say they want it, but they're not voting with their pocketbooks. Right, right. Um, I agree with you. I think the, the, the landscape for the record labels has been... You, could, you know, on one hand, you can say it's been decimated. It's certainly radically changed. Um, and I think the, the future of, of this music relies on artists who are passionate and certainly capable of making great music uh, and getting funding in one way or another. Um, some have turned to 
sort of the crowdfunding methodology, as uh, Billy Childs had done. Um, and then some, you know, are, are waiting for when the shoe drops in the record label, what the sort of next iteration of a record label would be. I certainly we don't hope we don't have to wait too long to hear another Lyle Mays project. I, I, I anticipate everyone, uh, as I did your most recent uh, recording, uh, with uh, a lot of hope uh, that I'm going to hear another great record. Well, um, thank you for that. Uh, we'll see. I mean, this current quartet record was a complete surprise to me. I didn't even know that that concert had been recorded. And it's only kind of by accident that I found out about it. I think some intern discovered some long-lost tapes in the basement in <laughs> Stuttgart that eventually I was contacted. Um, so e even that was a surprise. And at the time, there wasn't really funding available for that kind of project. When I went to do the album Fictionary, Pat told me that, you know, I should use Jack DeJanet on the project, even though I hadn't been playing with Jack, for sort of PR purposes, to get a big name mm -hmm. uh, on the record. So uh, even then, you know, there was no demand for my acoustic quartet. Yeah. Yeah. Do you... Do you find that there's uh, more of a? I mean, I, I see this. Do you? Do, is is it? Is it within your scope to see that Lyle May's music may actually have a bigger audience outside the U.S.? Possibly. I I have a lot of respect for my European fans. They seem to listen a little more deeply, maybe, and are a little less influenced by surface details. But again, the whole European classical tradition means more, I think, to the average uh, European music fan. They're maybe a little more educated, if I could mm -hmm. be so, mm -hmm. biased. Maybe a little more cultured? Yeah, I think they grow up with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that the American listener doesn't have that potential. But so often, starting with the Reagan administration, the arts have been underfunded and cut out of so many school programs that a lot of kids don't have the benefit of anything other than commercial music available on the radio, or now maybe YouTube or something. Mm -hmm. But the formal music education is not what it used to be. And, and the... the, the the optimism I have is in this global economy, if you would, um, we can reach people all over the world um, much easier. And, you know, I can tell you from the media side, one of the things that's been a real uh, sort of area of optimism is that we're now communicating with customers in places that we just didn't have reach before. And I'm hopeful that the same thing is going to happen with great music. True. I, I would say the landscape has changed. We've lost some things while we gained certain other things. So a young musician now has access to an unbelievable array of music from all cultures. But 
the thing that we've lost that's maybe critical is that experience of playing in an ensemble as a young child, getting to experience what it's like to make music with other musicians, all playing your instruments. And in the era of internet connectivity, we don't seem to have that. Uh, there may be a way, as the technology advances, that more people will be connecting and playing music together online or something. But I think we're in transition, and we haven't quite replaced that old experience of sitting down and making music acoustically with a bunch of other musicians. Well, I, I agree. And, and again, my always positive side says when we arrive at that point where uh, we catch up uh, that people will experience that again. Musicians will uh, play in ensembles and 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 interact uh, in a in a visceral way, and that fans will be able to enjoy it uh, at a heightened level uh, because of technology, uh, not necessarily in spite of it. Yeah, and when it's so easy to just get a drum loop set up on your computer and jam along with it. Uh, and unless you have a remarkable individual, that might hold them back. They might just stop at that point mm -hmm. uh, and be satisfied with the mechanical drum loop and never really learn what it's like to shape music with a drummer. Hmm. Wow, I was going to ask you, the uh, one of the things that I've noticed in, in the group projects is when... Uh, there's certainly a, you know, I, I know there have been all kinds of writings talking about you being the alter ego of Pat, and, but I, I see something a little bit different. I, I've noticed in live performances, um, and, and certainly on recordings as well, that when you deliver a fantastic solo, um, it, it, it's almost inspirational for someone who I think is one of the greatest guitarists and composers ever uh, to actually go and, and, and do it do it again. And, and what I mean by that is when you deliver a great piano solo or a synth solo and Pat solos next, it, I, I almost see that it energizes him to, to take what he does to the next level. Um, do you notice that when you, when you guys are playing together? Well, hats off to Pat for having um, the desire to have another strong voice in the music, both compositionally um, and soloistically. Uh, he's so, his standards are so high, mm -hmm. and he's so confident in his own abilities that uh, he was comfortable having me in the band, mm -hmm. whereas some band leaders might have been intimidated by that, I might say. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love the fact that uh, when we went to do projects, Pat and I would sit down and discuss our approach. Um, so I really thrived on the collaboration, and I think he did too. Well, that's great. Well, again, Lyle, it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah, and uh, let me go back... 
there's something I wrote down here. Oh, you wanted a, um, a lead-in? Yes. So, <clears throat> you going to be doing any touring or are you just taking a break? Well, as I said, I'm, I'm working more as a software manager than a musician. So, yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I'm just going to follow those projects for now. Well, then I'm going to sit here and enjoy um, Wild May's Street Dreams, Fictionary, certainly your solo album, and the, the new concert recording uh, that uh, is really... And I, I've seen the reviews. It, it's just getting wonderful reviews. In fact, one of the things I find fascinating is that um, while you, you've said it a number of times uh, today that uh, you don't consider yourself uh, a jazz musician, if you would, um, and yet... I see the, the reviews and everyone's saying, this is Lyle Mays as a jazz musician. The, and for the, for the jazz police, if you would, uh, this was kind of the album they were waiting for, whereas I, I'll take it all. Yeah, and, and I always had a problem with the jazz police because uh, of the idea of fundamentalism. And I abhor fundamentalism, whether it's in religion or politics or music. And anyone who thinks that jazz has to be acoustic or has to swing to be valid, it just sounds to me like a fundamentalist. And I, I ignore that on principle. Yeah. And I'm far more interested in integrating as many things as I can into what I do. So I, I suffered a little bit during my career because of playing electronic instruments, and that precluded a whole group of people from even listening to it or giving it a chance. Um, but I stand behind my decisions. I don't. Uh, I never aspired to please those fundamentalists anyway. And frankly, I don't like the music that generally pleases them. Right. But <laughs> uh, I, I've noticed that my music might take a few years or <laughs> decades, maybe, <laughs> to find its audience. When I released my first record, it was panned. It got horrible reviews and downbeat. And now people view it as a kind of classic. Yep. And all I can do is thank them now, but... I kind of want to say, where were you back then? You know, when I could have really used the support. Uh, <laughs> but you know, all's well that ends well. Yeah, and and we have uh, five solo projects that uh, that will absolutely stand the test of time. I, I think that every one of them will be looked at in the future, saying, "Yeah, this was this was a great recording, great album." And uh, well, you're again, very kind. Oh, Thank and and. and Again, enjoyed our talk, and uh, like I said, I, I, I hope to hear more from you in the future. If not, I'm going to keep listening to these babies. Yeah, I think I've I've put enough out there that um, you know people want to really dig into it. There, there's sustenance there. I, I don't always think that we need the next new thing. I think it's more about the quality of what's released rather than the quantity. But couldn't agree more. Lyle, again, thanks. We'll talk soon, hopefully again. All right, thank you. All right, be well. <laughs>